Thank you for joining us for our latest episode of the Rodolfo Rivas Project. Our guest today is Gitanjali Brandon. She's a legal counsel for the Indian delegation to the WTO. She's a very interesting person, and as you will hear, she'll tell us about her experience growing up in India and how she decided to become a career diplomat. She also traveled to Paris and did a short stint there, as well as some study stint over her trip there. Finally, she also tells us about some really good recommendations for restaurants here in Geneva. I hope you enjoy the show. Take it away, Gitanjali. Hello, uh, welcome to our podcast. I'm here with a very good colleague from India, Gitanjali Brandon. Uh, she is the legal uh, advisor. That's right. <laughs> legal advisor to India. And we usually sit side by side in some of the meetings, and I thought it would be a really good uh, opportunity to hear a bit more from her, from her journey to Geneva. And uh, let me welcome Gitanjali. How are you today? Thank you, Rodolfo. I'd, I'd like to thank you for calling me on the podcast. And I must say that being your neighbor in all these DSV meetings and so on, and general council meetings, I've come to realize that you, you're a very artistic person yourself, <laughs> and you have many interests and hobbies which you pursue. Um, and the podcast is a great idea, I think, to, to get an idea about different people, because Geneva is such an international city. So I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. Actually, I, I, you're my first female guest. I've wanted to have like so many female guests in the past, but it's difficult to coordinate agendas, and for whatever reason, it hasn't happened. But if you had to be the first one, I'm happy it's you. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. So you, where are you from? So I'm in from India, India hmm? and I was born in the city called Jaipur, which is in the northwest of India. Okay. Um, there's a state called Rajasthan, and Jaipur is the capital city of that state. It's um, one of the best-loved tourist cities in India. Okay. So when tourists from foreign countries visit, it's usually Delhi, which is the capital of India, and then they always um, you know, travel through Rajasthan, Jaipur being one of the main stops. Um, but I've lived all over India. All over I, was, India. I was born in Jaipur, but then I... So I studied there till high school, and then I studied law, which in India is like right after high school, you have a five-year program. So I went to uh, the National Law School of India, which is in Bangalore, in the south of India. Bangalore is now called Bengaluru, which is the, the regional yes. name of the city. Um, following which I worked as a private equity lawyer for about two years. But having done that and having done those hours, I decided that I would like to do something which, is, which has a bigger role, and which is more interesting. And in law school, I was always interested in trade law, international law. Oh, really? Um, okay. Also, inter generally international law, public international law, and I thought that you know, to marry uh, my interest areas with something uh, which also converges with representing my country. So I thought diplomacy would be would be a good idea. Uh, but going a bit back, like how was it growing up uh, in India? It was. Uh, I think it was. It's, growing up is wonderful, irrespective of which country you come from, <laughs> yeah, right? True. Because it's, as a child, you have 
so many experiences and particularly in India because it's a country with you know it's it's a country which has so much to offer in terms of just um, the sights and the sounds and so the many smells, people the smells the colors the color very colorful place. and and Rajasthan especially so it was great I I was born um, my parents are I mean I came from a fairly civil service meets academia kind of background. So that's where all of this came from? I guess so. <laughs> it, it has an impact because my dad was in um, the Indian Administrative Service, which is uh, one of the premier civil services of India. And my mother is a professor. She's in academics. So I grew up like that. I grew up very fond of um, books. And um, I, used to, I used to be a very talkative child, a very curious child, just curious about the world around me. I have a younger brother. And so we had a small, tight-knit, close-knit family. So was this like um, interest of your parents in their profession? Was this something that they tried to bring up in you? Or it was something that you just living around that, uh, you kind of absorbed it? I think it was the latter that I kind of absorbed it. Because initially, in fact, I mean, my interests used to change all the time. So when I was very, I think every child, when they're very little, they want to be an astronaut. Yeah. And then they want to be a movie star. And so you go through different phases. But uh, when I was nearing the end of my high school, I thought that I used to be very active in participating in debates and, and elocutions and model UNs, things like that. So I thought that given my interest in that kind of thing, law would be a good career path. And when I took up the law, I thought that maybe I'll just become a corporate lawyer and not really go towards um, being a diplomat or a civil servant. That only came later, and I think so. If there was an influence, it was more kind of it was it, it was just it wasn't very overt. It was okay. more subdued, but it yeah. finally did. Yeah, I finally did end up. And uh, I, before our talk, I did like a little Google search about you, and I came across this uh, that you apparently got like a really high result in the civil servant exam or something like that. Is it true? <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, a, it's quite a, an unpredictable exam in India because more than 500,000 people write it and then they eventually... 5,000. 500,000. 500,000. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's crazy. The numbers but this is 500,000 to go into the diplomatic uh, No, course? so what they do is that they recruit for, a, for different civil services in okay. India. So you have the administrative service, you have the police service, you have the diplomatic corps. And you have several other civil services like that. So this exam is like an umbrella exam which recruits people for all these services. And then based upon your rank in the merit list as well as your choice. So it's a function of merit and choice on based on which you get the service. And I was always clear that I wanted to be part of the Indian Foreign Service, which is the diplomatic corps of India. And so when I took the exam, I filled that as my first preference, and then luckily I, I ranked high enough to, to get that. Because it's a very competitive process, you know, 500, 600,000 people write it every year, and ultimately only about 30 or 40 people are selected to join the foreign service. Oh, foreign service. So in that sense, and overall they're taking about 800 to 900 people for different services, but maybe 30 to 40 to 45 people for the foreign service in any given year. So this is an exam that it's... Uh available after your professional studies? Yes, yes. So you have to be a graduate yes. at the very least. Um, but all kinds of people write that there are people who are 
qualified doctors or lawyers, like in my case, or engineers. So you could have done any particular thing. And in this exam, you can choose from a long list of subject optionals. So there's one um, paper which focuses on general studies, but the other is an optional. So it could be law, which in my case, I, I chose law as my, my optional. People take maths, people take engineering. So it, it, really, it really varies. That means it, it's open to people from different areas of work. Okay. Uh, that's a, uh, I think it's a really good way to find where the expertise and what do you want and what do you want to do with your life. Because choosing before you actually went to university, I don't know if you would even know what you want Absolutely. to do with your life. I agree, because you're too young and um, your choices change and they, they vary as you, as you get to know more about the world and your interests and, and what works best for you. So I think it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a good time because... Increasingly, more people come to the Indian civil service um, after having worked for a bit. So for in my case, I had already worked as a private equities and capital markets lawyer for about two years. So that gave me an idea that that's not the kind of work that I, I see myself doing for the rest of my life. And why you didn't like that kind of work? It was, I mean... Too sterile? I, I think, <laughs> no, it was, just, it was just a couple of things. I thought that it was... Capital markets and private equity in particular, when you're a young lawyer who's starting out, it's a lot of due diligence, yeah. and it's a, it's a lot of drudge work. So I didn't find it intellectually stimulating sure. enough. Um, and also I felt that it wasn't the work that I was doing was not really contributing at all towards, um, towards the nation and towards what I wanted to do in the larger scheme of things. I thought it was a very kind of specific role. And I wanted to be able to do more with my legal degree and generally be more involved. So I thought that maybe I should try my hand at, at the civil service. And uh, law school, how was law school for you? Law school was great in the sense that the curriculum and the studies were very difficult, but I made some... It's five years? So it's, a, it's a five-year course for yeah. us. But I made some great friends, and I think law school really opened the doors to to a very critical way of thinking. It just gives you, it equips you with the tools that are required. I mean, you could end up doing something completely different. I have uh, friends from law school who are now, you know, writers or who are chefs or who run their own restaurant. But, but I think... They just went to law school and then they... Yeah, they did a complete flip in terms of their career I path. I also have some of those. <laughs> <laughs> you yourself are one of those. Yeah, but things. like I have like a friend who's actually right now, she's a lawyer. She did a master's degree and she's in Italy just learning like, cuisine. Like she, she just always loved it and she just like, I'm going to do it. I think that's great. I think that's fantastic because I think our age, like the, the epoch that we live in, offers so much choice. Yeah. And it just, I mean, if you're really interested in something and you're willing to take the risk and work hard, then you could really just develop expertise in any given field. And you shouldn't restrict yourself necessarily based on what you studied in at university. Because it's, I mean, there's so much to do in this world, so one should really always follow what they enjoy the most. When I was also doing like this little research that I mentioned, I also came across that you were, I think it was part of the interview that you had uh, for, the, for the Foreign Service, and uh, you mentioned one of your favorite books. Uh, you mentioned Catcher in the Rye and yes. uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> was this before you also went to law school, or was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird? Was Atticus Finch an influence in you deciding to be a lawyer? 
Firstly, I, I must say that I commend you for your research skills. <laughs> it's excellent usually, stuff. usually, I don't do that, but uh, <laughs> I, I just thought that because like we we had talked, but we hadn't talked about True. too much, so I just wanted to get a. And I didn't even know if there was going to be anything out there, but uh, it's like a simple search. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yes, Atticus Finch was was a, was one of the characters that I today I mean till date I really look up to. And when I was a young kid and I first read To Kill a Mockingbird and to have read about this lawyer who stands up for what is right and he goes to great lengths, um, you know, and he, he manages to stand up to society and those were different times. The book is set in very different times. But to have the courage of conviction to stand up for what you believe in and what you think is right, that had a big influence in me. And uh, so I always thought that if if I went to law school, that kind of equips you to, with the tools required to help other people. And, and so that did have a lasting influence on me, that book. <laughs> I found that uh, very interesting because actually, uh, similarly to me, I also, it had a big impact in me. And actually, Atticus Finch was the subject of my personal statement when I applied for my master's degree. That's which awesome. I, I don't know if like many people probably also, many Essays probably also contain that reference, but... But that's awesome. <laughs> that's really awesome. And just to, just picking up on what you said, Rodolfo, you went to Stanford Law School. Yeah, and, and my personal statement to Stanford was the one that had... Like, that's these, excellent. Uh, that's really excellent. But then, like, I actually, after I got there, I heard many people saying that they wrote their personal statement with that, and I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I shouldn't have. <laughs> but so, did you go to Stanford straight from Israel? Were you in Israel before No, I, I'm originally from Mexico. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yes. Uh, it was, uh, I had come here to Geneva. Uh, I was working at WIPO, and after WIPO, I, I went okay. to, to the U.S. So, you studied in Mexico for, yeah. like, and then you came here to Geneva to work? Yeah. Well, I did, like, a, I did a master's degree in Spain, and from there I, I got the opportunity to, to work at to the Wipo, Wipo here. Okay. And then uh, from there I went to Stanford, and then I came back. But, uh, yeah, so I, I found that really, I guess the appeal of Atticus Finch is global. It's not a, I even though it's, like, really typical of the times, uh, it's set in the times, and uh, it's also global in its appeal. I agree with that. I think any kind of character which, which basically stands up for for what is right is is timeless. It and it, its impact is not restricted necessarily to one particular era. So in that sense, yes, Atticus Finch. And um, you know, when I was a child, we used to watch a lot of these uh, legal sitcoms. Like Boston Legal or Ali McBeal. That's also why I'm a lawyer. Yeah, you know, you, you watch that and it does have a, a kind of an impact because you see all these people leading their lives, going to law school. And Although after I became a lawyer, I realized it was, life was not like that. Nothing like that. <laughs> Nothing like that. That's just the Hollywood version of, of what. But, but law that and also, for me at least, it was also the, the novels by John Grisham, which I don't know if you of also Of course. Yeah. I, so I've read a few. I've read The Firm, and I've read um, one more by John Grisham. But I was somehow, I mean, 
it, they were interesting, but I was never like really into the John Grisham novels before law school. But having gone, having like studied law, and then then getting an idea about what those different writs are and what's habeas corpus and all of those things, then I started appreciating John Grisham novels a lot more. Mm. But yes. But but also another thing that I wanted to mention based on this, because I'm from Mexico, and the influence from the United States is a lot. Sure. Like, uh, it's everywhere. And also went to the American school, which uh, was basically like going to the to an American school, and that's where I came across To Kill a Mockingbird and right. also Catcher in the Rye. Right. Uh, was your upbringing also, like, in that regard, uh, like, pretty American culture heavy? I think so. I think in terms of pop culture, I did end up consuming... So India, of course, has a very, very rich indigenous culture of its own. Um, and every region has its own kind of cultural influences, different languages, and, you know, our folk tales are really white. So I, I had a mixed upbringing in the sense that I used to have a lot of Indian pop culture, which included everything from Bollywood to, you know, Indian language books and so on. But because I studied in... Um, I, I think the school I went to and the kind of friends I had, and even my parents who were both uh, huge readers, they both loved to read. So I think that kind of like set the course for the sort of popular culture that I was exposed to. And in terms of music and movies, yes, I, I would say that American culture played a big role. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, for good and for bad. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> for me. <laughs> but you have to say, like, like the, the fact that they use their soft power so well that's really something to learn from. And Mexico now, I mean, Mexico does a lot because when I was growing up, there was not so much, um, let's say, Latin American influence in India, but now you have a lot of Mexican chains. They're not as authentic as real Mexican food. But the very fact that at least people are aware of, of that culture and of, you know, Frida Kahlo and, and yeah. they're aware of maybe just very superficial bits of Mexican culture and not the deep culture, but the fact is that and I have a lot of friends from Latin America, from Colombia and Peru and other places who always say that for them, Mexico and Mexican programs and Mexican music was a big influence when yeah. they were growing up. Yeah, yeah, that, that was the case uh, because a lot of the dubbing that happened for all of these American shows or from wherever they come, it was done in Mexico. Right. And then it was consumed like in the rest of Latin America. Mm -hmm. And that's why like Mexico has a strong presence in Latin America, sure. also for good and for bad, but <laughs> True. yeah, a lot of uh, Latin American colleagues always mention this. But uh, what was what attracted you from from Catcher in the Rye? J.D. Salinger is also one of my favorite authors. I Same, so I love Salinger. And what I really liked was that the, the character of Holden Caulfield was so... I mean, I loved his free spirit. I loved the fact that he was critical. And for someone who was so young, he was not just buying and being socialized and conditioned by what society was throwing at him. He was questioning things. Mm. And he was saying that, why does it have to be in this particular way? With, re with reference to everything. And I, did, I, I just found that kind of sense of critical inquiry in a young person and that kind of sense of just not caring so much and just do, doing your own thing. Also sort of interesting and, and fascinating and although I never went like the whole Holden Caulfield way because I was quite a you know like, like now in, in the system in the system <laughs> and yeah exactly and I was always I think like someone who walked the straight and narrow in terms of being a straight A student and being serious in that sense but but I'm I'm, I'm, I'm someone who likes to to question like societal norms instead of just you know 
being just buying into them without without question. And in that sense, I really thought that um, Catcher in the Rye was was such an interesting book. And even Fanny and Zoe, which is another book that yeah, JD Sandler wrote. I, I actually I think I prefer Fanny and Zoe more than, than uh, Catcher, Catcher in the, in the Rye. Rye. Yes, but uh, I actually haven't read them in a long time. I don't know how after like everything that has happened in my life and now like we're part of the system and the, how that will play out I if know. it will have the same resonance I, I don't know I guess not also I think you're much more idealistic and impressionable when you're younger yeah um, and there's that old saying that you know if but if you before 30 if you're not you know, like a rebel, then you have no heart. And after 30, if you're not a bit of a conformist, then you have no brains. But that kind of a thing. And and so I think when you're younger and more more idealistic and not so restrained uh, by the trappings of the system, I, I think you, yeah, those characters resonate more with you. I haven't read these books in a long time. But actually, Franny and Zoe, when I, it was like a test that I put to my wife, it was like kind of like if you don't like this, like we cannot be together. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so it was imp- it was really important to me because even wow. like ten years ago, and hopefully she she liked it. <laughs> Although I don't think that she understood exactly how much I like I really connected with those characters. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. And, and actually, at one point, like we were talking about my movie, at one point I wanted to do a short adaptation of that story. I see. <laughs> but maybe you could. Yeah, but I, mean, uh, I, I don't know, like, this was also many years ago, like I said, I haven't read it again. I don't know how I would feel uh, about it again. Once you but yeah, at one it. point in my life, it, that had, it had, like, a Big tremendous in, yeah, influence on, over me. That's so interesting. <laughs> also, I wanted to ask you, Rodolfo, how did you, because, I mean, it's also quite a technical skill to be able to make movies. So did you also, like, do a film studies course when you were in college or...? Well, I, like forever, I've, I've been watching movies since forever, and not only watching the movies, but uh, I think we were fortunate. Although when I was growing up, we didn't have all the like tools that now everyone has. You can just uh, find on YouTube like many True. making of videos and everything. True. When I was growing up, this was not available, but I was constantly seeking information on this. And then when these tools became available, I, I did them. Okay. And I. But I've also taken classes like uh, like all these extracurricular that I've even seek. Like I remember I was living in Guadalajara, which is the second largest city in Mexico, and I would travel to Mexico City like every weekend for like several like months to go to a class of uh, of movie making. Okay. That was taught by like the top uh, film directors in Mexico. That's excellent. It was like amazing, and I was like. Like to me, every time I would leave work and then I would take the bus, that was like an all-nighter bus, and I would arrive in Mexico City like at six in the morning. I would go to class and then I would come back like on on Saturday after after the class. That shows, uh, that shows you real dedication. Yeah, I really, I really loved it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I don't know if I could do that today, <laughs> but at the time it was amazing, and I I look back at those days like um, very fondly. But it's so cool to see you really living your dream in that sense and the fact that you're making this film and now it's been accepted to one of those independent uh, film festivals. <laughs> Congratulations. And I also sent it to a couple of festivals in India. Let's, let's hear it. Because I also have like a really, like you were talking about like the influence of certain countries. I think India also has like not only regional but um, uh, globally. Good, exactly. Yeah. 
And in, the interesting thing is, like you said, the indie film scene in India is really growing now. Because for the longest time, you had the Hindi film industry, which is Bollywood, which is kind of dominating the whole scene. But like you said, we have very good regional film cinema from different languages, from south of India, from the northeast of India, in every place. And now there are all these film festivals, like you have the, you know, the Indian Film Festival in Goa. You have the Mumbai. Um, you know, Indian Film Festival, which is called Mami, and they showcase really interesting films now, short films, uh, full-length features, and of course, I think that's that's a also because India represents one of the biggest movie viewing markets in the world. Yeah. So increasingly, a lot of um, producers also target uh, India as a as a market, and I think the audience is also getting a lot more mature because now that you have these platforms like Amazon and and Netflix. They're exposed to global content, and so they're not just, you know, happy with the typical kind of stories which used to be told in Bollywood. They're more exposed to global cinema and independent cinema, and so I think it's it's going to also be a big market for. Actually, Mexico has like a big uh, movie chain, Cinepolis, which mm -hmm. I think they are also in India. In India. Yes, yeah. yes, that's right. And Mexico like has really done well with these uh, exhibitor things, and I think that one of the key markets that they looked at. Was the U.S. and India? Okay. Yeah. Also, they went a bit to uh, South America, but I was surprised that they have like presence in India. I didn't even know that Cinepolis yeah. was a Mexican now yeah. chain. That's yeah. great. Okay. But I want to hear your thought on uh, because we're talking about like uh, like the culture and the food. Because usually, when you go to the supermarkets, there when they go to the aisle with ethnic food. It's like Indian and Mexican, yeah. like right next to each other. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I find a lot of similarities between the, the two cuisines. In the use of spices, yeah. and yes, that's true. But having said that, I'll say that supermarket Indian food is not really, like you would agree, you know, like El Paso uh, is not really true it's Mexican. It's not true Mexican, but I, every time I, I see that, like, it fills my heart with joy. Yeah. That, <laughs> no, I'm so happy to see that. And across the world, wherever you go, you're likely to find some kind of an Indian food chain or an Indian restaurant, and people do enjoy that. I think what's also um, important is for us to showcase that Indian food is much more than chicken tikka masala or butter chicken, because that's just, that's more like um, Mughlai or Punjabi, North Indian food. But Indian food is so diverse in terms of its variety. If you go to the east of India or the south of India, or even like my home state, Rajasthan, just the, the the sheer variety of food is so different, and that's never showcased in international locations. So I'm I'm also like as a diplomat. This is of course a different posting. It's a very technical posting and a trade mission. But if I whenever I go to a regular embassy, that's something that I would like to as part of India's soft power to showcase the sheer variety of Indian food that we have. I completely, it's good that you mentioned that because I completely relate to that. Like, I'm, well, I don't know if, uh, for for good, a lot of the cuisine that is known outside of Mexico to be thought of Mexico is from my region. And a lot of the things that people know about Mexico from outside are from my region, like tequila, mariachi, and like the type of food is from my region. but. Mexico is so big and so diverse exactly. that the cuisine in the south, in the north, is completely different. And me being Mexican, I, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in Mexican cuisine because there is just too much. But that's one of the things that I miss most from my country, the, the food. Do you travel often? Do you go back? Not as often as I would like to, but uh, every time I go, 
I see my family and I eat a lot. Nice. I think that's like a similarity again. Indians love to eat as well. Yeah. I think that's that's an instant like way to bond with an Indian person too. But but that the thing that I was mentioning that fact that every supermarket has like an Indian part and a Mexican. I find that amazing. That's great. Few in fact. few cuisines uh, I think that have that impact uh, across the maybe world. Maybe Italian and maybe but, Thai these days yeah. a little bit. You're right. Absolutely, absolutely. I think. And, and there is a lot to offer. In fact, I, I have eaten in a couple of Mexican restaurants here in Geneva. But which one is your favorite? Yeah, there's, uh, there's one that is pretty good. And actually, I want to invite uh, the owner to the podcast to hear his story. <laughs> but it's El Catrin. That's, uh, El Catrin is great. Yeah, I've really been to El Catrin, yeah. yeah. I, it, has, it has great food, great cocktails. Yes, it's, uh, also, it's like the food that like my mom like cooked for me when I was nice. growing up. Nice. So it brings me back. That's really good. That's great. But there, there are so many in other places. And actually, I have like this thing that whenever I travel, I go try the Mexican restaurants. It, it drives my wife crazy, but is your wife Mexican as well? <laughs> no, she's from Kenya. I see. But I, I tell her because I love food. I want to see how it's interpreted like everywhere. And, and that's so interesting, right? Yeah. Like the way someone else. And so you have a lot of these, like these days, fusion um, restaurants which have which serve Indian cuisine, but in a, with a different twist. And I haven't till date found a very good Indian restaurant. Like, no, no. I mean, there are a few good ones. There's one at the Mandarin Oriental called Rasoi, which in Indian, which in Hindi means kitchen. Rasoi means kitchen. Um, but it's not really, I, I think also the fact is that they really uh, go low on the spices because for the foreigners' palate, they, they prefer to keep it a bit more bland. So it's not really authentic. But I like this one called Little India, which is on Arundi ah, uh, Lausanne. I've been there. That's actually quite Actually, good. that's one of the, we love Indian food and that's one of the ones that we it's a, like it's a good one. frequent. <laughs> that's a good one, yeah, yes. Good. Ah, it's good to hear because I, I really like it and I, I don't know if it's authentic or not. No. But that shows your seal that, of approval. That shows that you have like a good palate to, to just discern. No, it's a good one. It's a little India is a good restaurant. It's fairly authentic, and they have. Which one have you gone to? Because there are two different little Indias. The, yeah, the one in Rue Los Santos, yeah. almost near near the guard. The guard, like, yeah. exactly. The one with like lots of bright colors, like purple, purple and cool. yeah. It's but it's nice. That one's yeah. a good one. Yeah, it's good. That's one of my favorites. That's nice. <laughs> Usually, like when we go to an Indian, it's like uh, Indian restaurant is like one special occasion. And I, I love, I love El Catrin. I've been there a few times. I've also, I also like this one in Oviv called um, Los Cunandos. Los, yeah, Los uh, Cunados. Cunados. Sorry. I've only been there once, but yeah. It, 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 which is also, it's nice. They have uh, the tres leches is really good. Yeah, like I, I actually when I went there, I had the dessert. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. <laughs> but um, the other thing that I wanted to mention, because every time I, I mean, I've been here for some time and I've always been impressed by the quality of the Indian diplomats. And now that you're telling me that they have like this process, it makes sense why like they're really qualified and really committed to promoting their interests here. and. I mean, everyone is, everyone who comes to Geneva is good, but I do think that they excel a bit more, more and you. it's noticeable. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I think when you're representing the interests of you know 1.2 billion people, and we have 
in terms of sheer diversity, we also have like such different, um, we, we have a very diverse population in terms of standards of living. So when you're dealing with subjects like agriculture, you know that it will have a direct impact on the farmers whose livelihoods depend on it. So you also feel a bit more uh, driven to protect their interests and to represent them uh, to the best of your abilities. So I think that's there. And of course, like you said, the exam is so rigorous that people who come through that process are generally hardworking and they're good. So I'm sure that plays a role. Yeah, well, you you are also up there with, with all of them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but another thing I wanted to mention is that I've also heard that the, like uh, one of your previous colleagues, uh, actually the legal advisor, his brother also was the writer of uh, the, the, the novel that they adapted into the Hollywood movie. Um, you mean... Islamdog Midian. That's right. Vika so, yes, that's right. That's right. So, Vikas Swarup, who is the author of... Um, he wrote this movie, movie called Q&A, Questions and yeah, Answers, yeah, yeah. which was then adapted yeah. into uh, Slumdog Millionaire. And he's like part of the Foreign Service, no? Exactly. So, he's a super senior of mine from the Foreign Service. He's currently India's ambassador in Canada. And um, he's a very well-respected diplomat. And the, the great thing is that he's managed to have... A, you know, like a parallel career as an author because he has written, I think, four books now. Okay. Um, his first book, which was Q&A, did that really well. Yes. And imagine, like, the sheer, the sheer fact that, like, with your first book, you it gets made into, not just does it get made into a movie, a successful Hollywood movie, and it happens to win so many Oscars. So that was, he's really one of the seniors that we all look up to in our, in the foreign Yeah, series. it was like, uh, actually, that, the fact that someone like in like in my world kind of did this actually opened a lot of doors in, in my mind to it's possible maybe to do this because before that I didn't really know it was possible. And just to mention like I, I don't know if you're aware but the previous ambassador of the US Yes, he the, also revenant. Wrote the revenant. Yes. So it's not like a an isolated event. I, I think that it it happens and it's... Uh... I completely agree. And I, in fact, from Mexico, we've had this tradition from Latin America in general of poet diplomats or diplomat writers like Octavio Paz from, from Mexico. He lived for many years in India. And, ah, really? Yeah, he was posted in India and he's written so much about his experiences and he's also known as a very good author. Then you have Borges and then uh, Neruda and... So Borger, I, Borges is like... Uh, Argentinian? Yeah, but, but have you seen he, he's buried here in Geneva? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, okay. So did he die here? Like, did he live in his last years in Geneva? I don't know if he died here, but he lived uh, while growing up. Uh, I see. For a long period here. I Actually, know that. he writes about this, and maybe it was because he really loved it here that he's here. But you can go and see uh, his grave. It's near Plain Palais. Okay. Because I remember, I was in Paris before this. I was posted in Paris, and we used to go to this uh, cemetery, the Père Lachaise. Yeah, that's awesome. Which has so many, you know, poets and writers yeah, and, and musicians. Jim Morrison's Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> see, you like the doors. Yeah, I love the doors. <laughs> nice. Who doesn't? I know, who doesn't? <laughs> but then I see, like, a lot of similarities, in, like we said, in American culture. Yeah. But I'm surprised it travels so, so far. It does. I think if that's what I'm saying, like the sheer strength of American culture is the fact that that it. I mean, Mexican. It could be Mexico. It could be India. And of course, geographically, you're much closer to the United States. But for so many countries in Asia, people grow up listening to a lot of uh, American music and just consuming that popular culture, and that's one of their big strengths. 
I actually, I think a couple of days ago, I went to the movies and I saw this trailer of this British movie. Uh, it's like, I think, an Indian immigrant who is in the UK and he feels like out of place. And someone recommends Bruce, Spring Bruce Springsteen's song. I see. And then he feels like, oh my God, it's like me. He's talking directly to me. Okay. And I think that's more the case now in this global world. That right? is so uh, true. That is and so the true. specificity, I think it, it makes it even more relevant to everyone. And not, not because, because it, they access like this core real thing that you identify with. I think so, because human emotions and, and the things which drive you or the things which make you feel fear or anger or love hmm. are universal. Yeah. So in that sense, you're right that although cultural specifics may differ, but in terms of the universality of emotion, it's, it's all the same. And, and, and I think now that with, with globalization, we have the tools and the mediums to kind of uh, make sure that these ideas flow easily across yeah. the world. Yeah, so. that, that, that's... Uh... That's really good of the times that we live in. But uh, so this is your second posting. Yeah. You were in in, in Paris France, yeah. For how long? So I was um, in Paris actually for about two and a half years, and then our ministry had nominated me for a specific course at this uh, French at the French National School of Administration, which is called École Nationale d'Administration, which is in Strasbourg. So as part of that, I was um, that course was for fourteen months. So I was in Strasbourg. So in in total, I was in France for about three and a half years. And in France, was your role also...? So I was second secretary in charge of political affairs. It was completely different from the work that I do here. It was mostly um, just political reporting about all the important things which are taking place in France, all the important things which affect bilateral relations between India and France. And we have a very rich and very, um, you know, we have a comprehensive strategic partnership. So we you know, cooperate with France in the domains of defense and space and, and civil nuclear energy, culture, education. Um, so there are a lot of high-level exchanges at the level of, you know, heads of state, heads of government often. So, you know, preparing briefs for that, preparing for those visits. And just uh, in that sense, the it was quite a busy desk and it was a great learning opportunity. Paris is a beautiful city. Yeah. Strasbourg was a great experience. Also because it it was an opportunity to really understand how the French, um, because these are people who will end up becoming, um, yeah. you know, top French bureaucrats, ministers, even presidents, maybe. So just to get an idea of what the French elite are thinking and in what direction they're planning. So in that sense, it was quite interesting. That was your first experience living abroad? Living abroad, yes. Because I traveled earlier but never lived in yeah. another country, yes. And then after that, you went back to India? No. So, ah, you came directly. Here. Yeah, yeah. So I, because I, so how it works in India is that you do two postings abroad as a diplomat, and after that you do one stint back in headquarters in Delhi, and then again. So that was my first posting. My second one is this. So I'll probably after this posting I'll go back to to India for a bit. And now that you've lived like in French-speaking region for sometimes, is your French? Uh, I think it's reasonably good. Okay. Yes. Good. Yes. I, I think so because at, at ENA, which is the Ecole Nationale d'Administration, we it had to. French. It was okay. completely in French. Completely in French. So all our classes were in French, all our exams were in French. So it was a really immersive experience, and so that really helped. Good. 
Uh, I mean, I don't want to delve a lot uh, into this, but I'll just, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what's going on in the WTO right now. Because I heard, uh, I heard your presentation, was it two weeks ago? At the, at the World Trade Institute. Yeah, event. at the event organized by the WTI. Uh, you raised some interesting points, but what are your thoughts personal? Like, so just talking completely personally and not in my official capacity, well, I think it's a, it's a time of, of great challenges for this organization, but then, you know, inside every challenge there is an opportunity. So I think uh, we, we are seeing some exciting times at the WTO. What I hope is that going forward, because there will have to be some reform, you know, this has been reiterated at the highest levels by uh, trade ministers, even heads of state who've been talking about WTO and, and the various talks of reform that are going on. But I think it's important to just maintain a sense of balance when we talk of reform, because when you have an organization with 164 very diverse countries, the only reason, the only way of going forward is to take everyone along. And that can only happen when, um, you know, there's some kind of convergence and some kind of coming together at a middle point. Because if countries just are very inflexible about their positions, then there's never going, that, that will only lead to a deadlock in yeah. terms of negotiations. So I think some kind of, um, of pragmatic uh, approach and, and flexibilities are important at this, at this point. But as you said, uh, bilateral negotiation is difficult, but a negotiation with so many parties, it's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. That. It is a miracle. And I think so many of the secretariat staff who has been here since 95 and even before who were there at the time of the GATT and who were there while the Uruguay round was being negotiated, they really say that the fact that it was also the high tide of multilateralism around that around that point and the fact that so many people came together and agreed to these things it's a miracle and it has definitely helped to improve um, you know standards of living and free trade it has created new employment opportunities so the fact that we saw this great um, collaboration between very diverse nations for the last 25 years we need to keep up with it because otherwise like the latest WTO statistics show and the DG WTO was mentioning that there has been a significant downturn in, in global economic growth, in um, trade statistics. So hopefully we'd be able to put a break on, on these kind of um, protectionist, unilateral impulses that have taken place uh, now. Yeah, but like as you mentioned, one of the, the atmosphere was different back then and there was like this... Uh openness to, towards multilateralism, true. which seems like is not uh, the case right now. That is The true. opposite, actually, seems to be the case, like you're correctly pointing out. But with... Uh, I, I also agree that um, probably right now is one of the most important and interesting times in the WTO since back then when it was created, because I don't think that we had ever faced... We had faced challenges before, but not not like at this, this scale. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you completely in that sense that the next this I mean the next couple of years are going to be really um, important in terms of the future of this organization and whether it continues to thrive and what form it it takes. So the conversations that are taking place right now. I mean, we find ourselves at the WTO at a very important um, kind of milestone in its history. 
And so it's, uh, we can all hope, I mean, we all represent our national interests and we all represent our national positions. But I think in the, in the interest of just openness and, and you know, continuing um, growth and development across the world, which is definitely helped by free trade, I really hope that everyone can come towards a middle point and, and find some kind of a solution. So you're optimistic or I mean, what what choice do we really have, right? It's it's easy to be pessimistic and say that well, the situation is really alarming. And but I really feel that if you look at the history of the world, things are cyclical. Like you said, that there was a point of time, you know, because of the two world wars and the fact that there had been just so much the horrors that humanity had witnessed. And after that, there was this kind of global agreement that you have to have institutions not just like the WTO, but also the UN. Multilateralism was important, and acting together as a committee of nations was important. And I think that it is cyclical. Right now we are seeing a sort of revisitation of of more... Well, there's many, at the moment, there's many challenges that are bigger than any country. And we I, have to... Absolutely. Like, for example, climate, climate change. change. Absolutely. That, that's the one that keeps like repeating, but... It's true, like that's a challenge that requires a multilateral effort. Absolutely. I completely agree with you because these are not challenges that one country can, and these are not geographically limited challenges because what happens in one country, the spillover effects will be seen in, in another country. And now I think even more than before. Before. And so we all have to act in concert, and that's important. And I really liked something that Peter Vandenbosch, the former Appellate Body member, said in his farewell speech recently, I think about two weeks ago yeah. or something, when he said that, you know, if unless we, we manage to make strides towards, in a more positive direction, history will not forgive us if, you know, if, if and so it is really incumbent upon our generation and upon all of us right now to act in a, in a manner that would, that would just preserve a world which is free and fair and which um provides for sustainable growth and development and economic opportunity, climate justice to everyone across the world. Because, I mean, unless we all act together in concert, then it's it's just going to be a very difficult time for humankind in general. It won't be yes. restricted to one particular country. Yes. Yeah, and it's true to hear like that perspective from someone who has been involved in uh, this uh, this arena for so long. It's true. Like uh, right now, we're at a really critical time, and we should be aware of that. And we should, knowing that, try to do something about it. True. But uh, like you, I'm uh, I'm generally pessimistic. But on on this particular issue, I want to be optimistic. <laughs> Because I just feel it's easy right now. I mean, we've been in a deadlock in the negotiating track. We have the impasse in the appellate body. So there doesn't seem to be a ray of hope anywhere. So it's easy, I know, it's easy to be pessimistic. But we really, like, if we just... We have no option but to try and strive towards towards finding some kind of a middle path where where we can break the deadlock, where we can all all sort of come to, come to a conclusion. And it's not going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be a silver bullet which fixes everything. There will have to be incremental steps being taken in every in all the different pillars of... You know, be it negotiations, and I'm hopeful that at least in certain areas, like maybe fisheries, we'll have some kind of a result. We'll have some kind of a discipline by the next ministerial 
So as long as there are incremental changes happening, that would also preserve the credibility of this organization in the eyes of you know our populations back home. Because you know, if if an organization is in a perpetual state of deadlock and it doesn't contribute anything, then people start raising questions. In I mean, back home, so you have to tell your sort of domestic constituencies about what is the benefit that our country is getting. And actually, in India, the civil society seems to be very interested about what's going on. I was surprised. Uh, who was it in a, a couple of ministerials before? Like I see that they send a. Like news uh, reporters here, and I, I don't know many countries that do that. Um, so there's a lot of interest in India. There is a lot of interest. And there's a lot of informed. Uh, exactly. Now you have people who are aware, and so they're very engaged, and that's why a part of any civil servant's job right now is also kind of public relations and managing, and you know, just ensuring. So in 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 terms of the foreign service. At the Foreign Office, we have an external public uh, publicity department which helps to inform our, our public about what India is doing in different countries and how the foreign policy is being shaped, what are the things which inform our relations with different countries. And similarly, when it comes to trade, we have an increasingly aware um, you know, demographic, and that's why you have to. Uh, and I think that's also the case in a lot of other countries, at least in in most of the bigger players. Yeah, so you have to be... But I think in India it's remarkably refreshing that this happens like at, at such a... across all levels. That is true. Um, well, I, maybe you can also tell us a bit about like what does a day look like for someone working in the Indian Diplomatic Corps here in Geneva? It's usually quite busy because, <laughs> um, well, I... I mean, I was looking after all the disputes, but now, luckily, so as someone in charge of the dispute settlement division, we have currently 13 active disputes, 13 ongoing disputes, so that takes a lot of time. Luckily, I now have a colleague who also is handling disputes, so that work has been uh, divided. And what is the role of uh, someone here in Geneva? Is this done in capital? Is it done here in Geneva? Is it done in conjunction? In conjunction, because what happens is that... uh, you know, we we provide a lot of inputs. We provide a lot of uh, drafting inputs as well on drafts and so on to the to the law firms because we generally engage private law firms. Ah, you engage one. Because there's we, a, there's several uh, from India. There are quite a few now. But you use uh, Indian law firms? Or? Yes, yes. Because now there's the government also wants to encourage and and capacity. ensure that there's capacity yeah. building with amongst Indian law firms. So we do hire only Indian law firms. And but the fact is that because trade law is still a niche area. Um, so you need to have a lot of hand-holding support for these law firms from the delegates who are based here in Geneva in terms of substantive inputs as well as just helping them with all the procedural filings and how to go about it and so on. Um, the other thing, as, as you know, is, the, of course, all the talks in the Walker process, the informal process for the appellate body matters. So India is one of the co-sponsors, uh, along with the EU and several other countries, of proposals to um, resolve the deadlock in the appellate body. So we're very engaged and we're at the at the forefront of, of these conversations. So that also takes up a lot of time to just see how that process is evolving. Now, of course, like I mentioned, I'm also working on agriculture, which is a very, very important um, subject area for India because, you know, it comprises, it forms a big percentage of our 
um, in terms of you know when you say like how much how much of the, the percentage of population that depends on agriculture in India is very is very high, uh, the the number of people living in rural areas is very high. So that is something that you know is a very important um, area for India. So I have I'm I've just started on agriculture, so I'm picking up, and that involves a lot of reading because it's very nuanced. There are different kind of within the you know the within the era. There's so many of the subdisciplines which are very you know complicated. They have a long negotiating history. Yeah. So my day typically is um, you know we we report to work at nine in the morning, and then you have your internal meetings and briefings and so on. But then you also have on an average at least four to five meetings a week at the WTO. Um, then you have to be in touch with capital. You have to send inputs back home to capital. So it's it's usually quite a quite a busy day in terms of um, not just attending meetings and so on, but also then drafting substantive things, reports, and reporting back to capital. Yeah, yeah, likewise. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but it's good uh, to hear from others' perspective because I'm constantly contacted by people who want to get into sure. these, uh, and that's actually one of the reasons why I created this podcast. Because I I am constantly contacted and sometimes I can give an answer, sometimes not. But then I thought it would be good to hear others' perspective and maybe create like a richer place where people can just listen to it and learn about what are the differences and how they can get in. Um, so two things before we conclude. Um, what what do you see as the future for you? Like in in this area, would you? Want to continue working in this and uh, evolving in your diplomatic career, or what? What do you see? So that's a very good question. It's a very interesting question, specifically um, in our context, because in India, it's unlike the USTR or the EU service where people do trade. Like if you're doing trade law, you do trade for the rest of your life. That's not true for us, because for us, irrespective. For instance, my predecessor who was working here is now working in the civil taxation department back home in India. So it can be completely different. And as a as a career diplomat, um, I could very well be posted in a bilateral mission next, or I could go back and work on something which has nothing to do with trade. But having said that, as someone who studied law, I mean, as a lawyer by training, and someone interested in this area, I would definitely want to keep up with, with trade law. And I would I would like to develop domain expertise in this particular area. Maybe also, um, you know, publish more, write more, just just be involved in this area, irrespective of what my next posting is. That's something I would like to do. Yes. And also, before you you mentioned a bit that you like to do some painting. Yes. <laughs> I would like to do that more. I would like to find time like you, uh, Rodolfo, <laughs> because I think it's very inspiring to meet colleagues like you who, while being consumate professionals are also doing other things on their side, other things which they're interested in, like movie making, and you're doing so well now. So I do paint, and um, that's something that I would like to continue doing, do a bit more, hopefully have an exhibition at some point of time. Mm, great. That's something I, yeah, hopefully I'll find the time to be able to do that. If, if it's here in Geneva, please let me know. For sure, for sure. Uh, well, the other thing that I wanted to hear your thoughts in is, uh, so what advice would you give Maybe some advice to uh, Indian nationals that want to go into the foreign service, but also some advice to more generally people who want to get involved in international affairs. What would you 
say it has worked for you or has not worked for you or what what do you recommend so I think that this is a fascinating um, field to be organized uh, to be involved in because there's so much that's happening now uh, generally speaking in the in the realm of international affairs and specifically more particularly in in, um, in trade Uh, we have a lot of interest from Indian students increasingly, so I even see it in Geneva. There are a lot more Indian students who are coming to the Graduate Institute or uh, even to the WTO for internships who are now interested in trade. And, and there's also like a lot of Indians in the staff, no? Absolutely. I think they're well represented. Well, we're <laughs> fairly well represented. I mean, maybe not as much as proportionately <laughs> uh, in terms of our population, but yes, increasingly so. Because when I went to law school, There was not as much of an interest in trade law. It was still a very um, nascent, very niche area. But now I think there's a there's a well-founded interest also because the government has a lot many disputes, and we have done a lot of capacity building with with Indian law firms. And generally, it's a fascinating area of the law. I think if you were to look at WTO case law and generally the way tr and investment arbitrations now, of course, is a big uh, hot area of the law. Um, I think it's 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 very it's much more interesting than general corporate law, which could yeah. which could be a little not as intellectually challenging. So I think it's an interesting area. What I would tell um, Indian students or Indian young Indian professionals who are interested in this is to just be aware that the market is it's a tough market. In the sense, I have a lot of uh, young Indian friends here who ha are just finishing their LLMs in trade law. But it's difficult to get an internship opportunity either with the WTO or to land a contract with one of the law firms here like Sidley Austin or White and Case and so on. Because... Um, also due to the nationality. Exactly. That is, that is one of the issues. And But also because there are not, there are not many of these jobs. Not, not many of these jobs. I think for investment arbitrations, in, there, yeah. there, there are a lot more. But if you're looking to do WTO trade law, it's, it's quite a niche area still. I remember, just because it, what you're saying seems really similar to what I always tell them. I am actually really tough at the beginning, and I see that like as a, if they want to continue after they heard my speech, then, well, they're going to be ready because it's exactly. not going to be easy. And exactly. if they turn away then, then it's good because they will probably not be able to last long. Last, exactly. But I, I remember once I had a conversation with Werner, and he mentioned that when he concluded his LLM, he just like got this job here. Now like that never happens anymore. Like no. those were different times. Those were different times. I in fact there are very smart people who I know here uh, who finish their who finish their LLMs and then they just wait around for six months. A lot of them show interest in interning with our mission and we don't offer paid internships so it's an unpaid internship but they're still just wanting to stay on in Geneva hoping to find an opening in the WTO or one of the law firms but I see many bright people ultimately having to go back because it is it is quite a tough market mm. and they're not and of course like you said the nationality issue because they're not Swiss they're not Europeans European. so it's difficult for them but I think if you're interested in something you'll definitely find a way in India as well they're increasingly more Uh, law firms which do trade law work, there's a lot more opportunity in terms of even if you want to be a researcher or an academic in this area, a lot of law schools are beginning to, to offer these courses. And well, you have uh, one of the most prominent scholars, Bhagwati, yes, in Colombia. Yes, exactly. So Jagdeep Bhagwati is, is really prominent. And, and I think you could really, if you're really interested in it and you stay the course, then you could definitely 
do well. I think anything which you want to ultimately master requires a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifices. It's never really easy. But if you're if you're driven enough and if you're willing to put in those hours and put in the work, then then I think it's it's a good it's a very interesting area to be in. And um, if you're a specialist, like I, I see some of the specialists here in Geneva, who get then invited to so many conferences and and they they do so much work because if you once you crack the code and you're inside it, then there's a lot of interesting opportunities. But it takes time. But it takes time, so they have to <laughs> be patient. To put and, in the work and, and exactly, be exactly. Well, I'm glad to hear that your views are similar to mine because sometimes I think that I am too harsh, but it it's true. I think it's it's difficult, and they should know. But also the rewards are, are there if you Precisely. manage to stay the course. And it's good to be realistic and not sell them a pipe dream because, yeah. you know, if you just tell them, hey, you know, it's so easy, then a lot of people might end up being disappointed. So it's important to be realistic and tell them that it's not an easy field to, to get into. But but I imagine maybe that's the case with everything. That is true. <laughs> that is so true. But sometimes everything. I think that maybe they're thinking, oh, he doesn't want to be me to be his a competition. competition. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth. <laughs> It is the truth. No, and I think you're a great mentor, Rodolfo. I think this initiative that you have of the podcast and the fact that you organize the trade law lectures, it's great because it's, and those lectures are often open to the public, right? It's based uh, on... Yes, a, yes, they're open to the So public. that's great, like young students and people who are studying. And also the idea of those lectures was, because sometimes I think it's normal, but sometimes we are in this little bubble, really nice bubble in front of the lake, but uh, in a bubble nonetheless. And we don't hear any outside views. Uh, views. So that's why like, exactly. it's good to hear from professors and voices that we normally don't get the opportunity to. And it's also, I've heard that it informs their research, because sometimes they do this research away from Geneva and they don't know what's going on. Right. Even just coming here and like listening for a bit, it informs their, their views and their research. And it's like a It's a win-win yeah. for, for both sides, absolutely. Because I think, yeah, and we need to hear contrary perspectives because it, otherwise you get so, it's like an echo chamber. You keep hearing the same opinions and, and then you don't get any fresh perspectives. But Th these that, are, That's the idea. I don't know if we've completely uh, uh, succeeded in that, but that's uh, the goal. I've attended two of your uh, trade law you know, lecture series and I think they've been, they've been a big success. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Well, there, there'll be more in the future. But anyway, I, I really enjoyed our talk, and uh, we will continue seeing each other as neighbors here. In exactly. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rodolfo. Okay.